And I'm not sure if you guys knew this about me or not, because some of you have been here brand new. Some of you have been here since the beginning. But there's a point in my life where I was a, a pastor, where, in fact, I had the privilege and the opportunity to be the founding pastor of this church right here. And I've always have and always be, will be incredibly proud of this community of faith of ours. So much so that my memories on Facebook, as I'm ruminating in the morning, are riddled with element comments, egregious grammatical mistakes, uh, and, of course, an infinite supply of fancy pastor quotes. You know, those were usually where I probably felt morally and intellectually high on a high horse, right? And though they were great, and I'm scrolling through them, and I'm remembering the quotes, and, uh, and I'm surprised that people didn't yell at me enough for how bad I misspell things and or the uses uh, or the poor uses of commas. Um, and some of these moments were mind-bottling, as the great philosopher Will Ferrell once said. I'm sure that they're very important to me at that time, though I could not for the life of me today like, tell you all the moments where, where I found them, right? I can't tell you, man, I can remember exactly where I was when I wrote that or what we were studying. I remember that book that we read. No, I usually none of them. I was like, oh, that, that was, that's, that's really cool. But like, the memory is not necessarily attached to that you know, that British accent, learned voice that I felt so confident in putting on Facebook. Not that you were in the bathroom asking me about this, and not that you, you know, maybe even go back and look at your memories. I don't know, but there's, maybe you do, but there's times for all of us when we feel like we have it figured out. And we have all the long-lost answers, and we are impressing even our own selves. And then there are times where not one book or one world-renowned speaker or podcast, or seminar, or can even remotely have the same effect that observing my children can have. And if I'm honest with you, the heart of the message of today came from a story that I heard about my son. It's funny, as I'm going through the, the memories on Facebook, it's, it's the ones of my kids that I can clearly and evidently, I know exactly where I was. I know exactly what was happening. And it, you're humbled sometimes when you go back and you remember, man, I learned more from a two-year-old than some guy who wrote an amazingly beautiful book, right? There's something that happens where God uses the simplicity of the innocent kiddos in our life to really reflect a mirror on our own heart. I want to tell you a little story about my son. So it starts with my daughter. She is a smarty pants, and we last year had this thing called Authors Symposium or Authors Forum where they had to um, be an author, they had to write their own little short story, and then they had to like present it to the class. So they would dress in character, and they would have like a, one of those trifold boards that they do at school, and they would you know, have pages of their book up there, and original artwork, or giveaways, or whatever they could do, and then they would take turns throughout the day, through the symposium, reading bits of their stories to the grades older and younger, and there, it was all about creative writing and understanding plot line and question and all the above. And so she was super proud of her work. Um, she's really into K-pop. Like, I still really don't have an idea what that is. It's music from Korea, if you don't know that. I, I don't know where she got into this, but she's really into it right now. And so she wrote a K-pop story, um, and she dressed like one of the K-pop people that she listens to, and she was super excited because she did all of her drawings, and she even got, like, Korean candy to pass out, like ordered it off of Amazon, like was super excited to give this out. And, um, and her brother had overheard her, like, you know, going through this, and he is super attentive, and he was pumped about her candy for her, but he knew it was extra expensive. Um, so, uh, you know, she had decided only one per person is what she was going to do. Well, 
Fast forward to the day of the symposium. She's in um, the special event center, and it's her turn to speak to uh, the first and second graders. And the first graders are all gathered around her. And, you know, there's a ton of these uh, boards. Up, so everyone else who's not sitting and listening can go through and, you know, view all the boards, you know, sample the candy or whatever. Well, my son was in second grade at the time. And he's in there, and he's, he's a proud big brother or proud little brother. He's bigger than her, but he's proud of her, if that makes sense. And uh, he goes by her board, and he sees a bunch of eighth graders just pillaging her candy supply. And this second grader walks right up to him and gets in between the eighth graders and his sister's candy and says, no, you're only allowed to have one. You can't do this. And they proceed to, like, mock him and make fun of him. And he stands, and he, like, grabs the thing. You can't, this is my sister's candy. You can't have this candy. This is, not, this is against the rules. You're only supposed to have one. And they're laughing, and they're making fun of him. And he's got tears in his eyes, and he doesn't know what to do. And he's looking around for help. And he stood there. And he was told them all the reasons why they weren't allowed and what they're only supposed to have one. And this was against the rules. And, and he didn't understand why they didn't understand. But he stood there anyway as they mocked this little second grader. And when I hear this story of my son, my eyes the first time were like, I was super choked up. I was filled with tears. One, because I am a crier. Movies with horses, Publix commercials, and every Bucks game. But also because I see my son in here and I still have so much to learn about this world. It's in those moments that I hear the heart of God loud and clear. And I, in all my well-learned, well-read scholarly pride, am humbled once again by an eight-year-old. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this to us in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So this morning, I want to share with you a thought and a challenge that came to me after hearing this story. And though it might sound a little foolish and not super intellectual, I believe that it still truly has wisdom for us all. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go through it. God, thank you so much uh, that we have a chance to be here. And thank you that, I mean, really, the ways in which you speak to our heart are beautiful, whether books or poems or whatever, but I'm, I'm honored that you choose to use the foolish things to teach us your heart. We love you, and I pray that as I speak, God, that your words would be my words, and that my words would be your words, and that when we're done and we walk away from here, like we can be challenged and encouraged to continue to follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I want to start this morning with another story. Uh, it's about Moses. Some of you who grew up in the church might know him. Some of you who this might be your first time to the church have no clue who he is. He was this iconic figure of the Israelites, the Hebrew people, and he was their first savior, if you will. Israel was in slavery, and, um, and God, through crazy means and amazing epic stories, used a man named Moses to help deliver um, Israel from the slavery of Egypt. And when he does, I mean, it's things that are beyond Moses' control. Plagues and miracles and, you know, the splitting of the ocean so that they could walk through this on dry ground and then the collapse on them right as Pharaoh and the Egyptians are on hot pursuit, ridding them once and for all of their enemy. And the promise was this, that a long time before Moses, God said to Abraham that I will make you a father of nations. Right? And your descendants will be more numerous than the sand and the sea or the stars and the sky. And then all of a sudden, Israel is in captivity. They're slaves. And 
they're holding on to this hope, but they don't see how it's possible. So God sends a man named Moses, delivers them. And when they get to the, to the land that they're promised, this, this new place to begin again, where they can make a city, where that promise can come true, they see the obstacles in front of them. And instead of relying and having the faith and the confidence of the God who just did all these miracles to deliver them from the most uh, ruthless and brutal superpower of the day, they chose to act in fear and on their own understanding. And they ended up not following God to possess the land that they were given. And because of that, they wandered. They wandered for 40 years in the desert. I was just in Texas and I wandered... um, from the airplane to my Uber, and I wanted to die for the heat that was there. And I could not imagine wandering for 40 years in the desert and, and still having a good attitude and still thinking, are you sure it was better to turn away from that place? You know what I mean? And in this time, God is incredibly gracious because, I mean, I for one am beyond grateful that he doesn't give us what we deserve. And he keeps them fed. He keeps their shoes from running out, the sandals from wearing out. He keeps them, you know, going even though they're wandering. And the whole time, it's this ebb and flow of the Israelite people where they trust, they have faith, and then they hate, and they do it in their own way. They trust, they have faith, and they hate, and they do it in their way. They trust, they have faith, and they just rebel against God. They fall in love with God. They rebel against It sounds like every one of our minds on a daily basis, right? And then we get to this place where they're thirsty. They're very, very thirsty. And, like, a time before this... God had led Moses to a place where um, he had him tap a rock with his rod and water came out and it was uh, a beautiful miracle. And we get to this place here where yet again, Moses is incredibly frustrated with this, you know, up and down of his people's faith and his own faith and they're still wandering, you know, and he gets to a place where his people are thirsty and he asks God for water and God says to this, God says to him, um, speak to this rock. And I'll bring it forth. God's once again going to provide for his people and show them that it's him that does the providing, right? And Moses, um, well, let me, let's pick up here in Numbers 20, verse 9. We'll see what he did here. So Moses did as he was told, and he took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord, like before, right? And then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather to the rock. And here's his inspiration speech, right? Listen, you rebels, he shouted, must we bring you water from this rock? It happened once before, and you can hear like the cynicism in his voice and the frustration in his voice. Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff, and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. But the Lord said to the Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness for the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land that I'm giving them. God asked him to speak to the rock, and Moses took it in his own hands and smacked the rock. His pride and his frustration with his people have him acting out of a place or maybe out of a position of power, right? Right, power, instead of one of dependence in God for the provision. So fast forward, right? Moses is on his deathbed now, and he's brought to this high place where he can see just out in the horizon the place of promise, you know, that he had been seeking the last 40 years. He could see just over the hill, like, oh, that's the place that God called us to, and we're finally here, and 
I can't go. Now, a bitter man or a disappointed man might have just died an old angry cuss, right? Rah, that's my place. I'm not going, right? Or a man who felt wrong or shortchanged might have just avoided the conversation to begin with. They might have deliberately taken their ball and gone home because they weren't allowed to play anymore. But, but Moses did something here that was so beautiful and so humble. And I hope that one day, if we ever find our place itself in this kind of place, that we can act like he did. And he has this big, huge elaborate speech where he knows that he's not going there with them. But he's praying and he's hoping that the lessons that they have learned over the last 40-something years will guide his people that he can't guide anymore. And so he stands before them, an old man, like he's on the verge of death, and says, this command in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, this commandment I am commanding you today isn't too much for you. It's not out of your reach. It's not on a high mountain. You don't have to go get mountaineers to climb the peak and bring it down to your level and explain it before you can live it, which that is a throwback to when he went up and got the Ten Commandments and brought them down. And it's not across the ocean, and you don't have to send sailors to go out and get it and bring it back and then explain it before you can live it. He said, no, the word is right here and right now, as near as the tongue is in your mouth, as near as the heart is to your chest. Just do it. And he says this in verse 18. Yeah, look at what I've done for you today. I placed in front of you life and good and death and evil. And I command you today to love God, your God, walk in his ways and keep his commandments, regulations, and the rules so that you'll live, really live, live exuberantly blessed by God, your God, in the land that you're about to enter and possess. But I warn you, if you have a change of heart and you refuse to listen obediently and willfully go off and serve and worship other gods like they had been doing on the journey before, right? You will most certainly die. You won't last long in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. He says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I place before you life and death, blessing and curse. He says, choose life so that you and your children will live and love God, your God, listening obediently to him, firmly embracing him. Oh, yes, he is life itself, a long life settled on the soil that God, your God, promised to give your, your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He can't go with them. He has gotten them this far, and he could see it with his own eyes, and it's just over the hill and he can't go. And I'm sure he felt like the biggest fool in the world, right? He led them for most of their lives, right? He led them, the majority of his life has been wandering around, leading these people, trying to point them towards the heart of a God that in our own human frailty and fickleness, like we forget about all too often and all too easily. But at this moment, like you could see something, that this was not his concern, so what does he do? He charges them with the stewardship of this promise to not squander the great thing and then to live it in gratitude and in reverence to the one who both promised it and delivered it in the first place. And do you see the, the sense of gravity of the charge and the blessing that he put over them? Because it all hinged on one action, one action, the humble choice. Because everything in this world, in essence, comes down to the act of choosing, Right? Now, my kids are just like any other sibling group. One minute, they're friends, and the next minute, they can drive each other crazy. Anybody know what that's like? Yep, amen. I think it's the same thing for all of us here. 
And of course, the tension with any relationship gets all the worse or more exaggerated when things don't happen to go our particular way, right? And this could have been Moses too, but something he must have learned along those 40 years was that his life, and maybe even he himself, was not just for him, but was lived and meant to be lived for the sake of others. I mean, think about our own life, right? Not, it's, and it's not the circumstances that I'm talking about, because I think those are two completely different things, right? It is not your circumstances or my circumstances, but it's our choice and our response during them is what I think really matters, right? I mean, think about the way we respond when we don't get our way or if we're wrongly accused. Think about what happens when we're confronted with the needs and the wants of those who do not have. How do we respond when water and shelter and medicine are not available for people who must have them? What choice do we make? Think about it when we're misunderstood in our marriages or when we're missing the mark or how do you fight? How do you reason? How do you respond? Right? Because our choices tell us something ridiculously clear that ultimately our choices tell the world who it is that we are living for. Because it's not necessarily our words, right? Or how we even speak them that the world around us takes notice of. But rather it's how we choose to respond that makes the truest kind of impression. Moses learned that, as Andy Stanley likes to say, that leadership is stewardship and it's temporary. And the measure of his leadership was not whether or not he got to the promised land, but as to how his people would choose to live there once they were able to call it home. Would they choose? Would we choose? Will we choose life and the spirit of God who gives it? or the temporary self and the death that surely will follow it. And this is the daily choice, and I'm not speaking at all from a place of having this figured out, just so we're clear. This is a daily choice, and if we're honest, we are presented with this same choice like 10,000 times a day. Some of them are big and grandiose and super important. Some of them are so minuscule, like the thought we're going to inhabit, or the attitude that we're going to take, or... Um, the small gift or forgiveness or the, or the jealousy or whatever it could be, 10,000 times a day, these choices are presented for us. Some of them are almost imperceptible, and some of them are so much more urgent. And Proverbs 4 tells us this, that the, in 4, 18 through 19, that the ways of right living people glow with light, and the longer they live, the brighter they shine. But the road of wrongdoing gets darker and darker, and its travelers can't see a thing and they fall flat on their faces. And I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. He says, you're familiar with the old written law to love your friends and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies and let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For when you're working out of your true selves, your God-created selves, this is what God does. He gives his best, right? The sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless. The good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anyone can do that, he says. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner can do that. But in a word, he says, so what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. 
live generously and graciously towards others the same way that God lives towards you. Those couple verses, and I mean, I had like 12 of them in there, but I figured you guys would might want to eat lunch, so I made the choice to remove them there. But like, there's so many more of these types of admonitions, right, that echo the same challenge that Moses gave his people on the eve of his death. I'm thinking about Gabe again. Like, he stood there with tears in his eyes against the bigger, the stronger kids who, of course, were making fun of this little second grader. And he was there, foolishly there, until a teacher could come and bring some justice to the whole situation. And I, I don't think he felt brave. I think he didn't do this just because he was hoping some teacher would take notice and give him a prize out of the treat bag or because he was hoping his sister would pat him on the back. I don't think he did this for those reasons. To be honest, he wasn't even the one that told me the story. He's never really shared it with me. I, I heard it given from the other teachers that were in the area. But he risked himself to be the fool to defend his sister who could not defend herself. Because at the end of the day, what I'm learning is that Gabe was not just living for Gabe. And he made a choice to stand on behalf of one who couldn't stand for themselves. We all have the example of all examples. And no, it's not my kid. The world thought we had it all figured out, right? We made our own wisdom, patted ourselves on the back. We diligently crafted our own religious systems and legalisms. And the selfish nature behind it all kept us farther and farther from the heart of God. So he stepped in. God stepped in, and he made the choice. It was his son that played the part of the fool to stand up for those who had gotten long lost away along the way. He was the one to defend the defenseless, to speak up for the poor and the destitute, to love his enemies, to give us the very same admonition that Moses once gave, and to give it all over again. I want to close today with uh, a couple questions and the band you guys can come up and here's here's the first one right do our choices lead to hope to justice to peace to mercy to grace to love right or do they lead to like selfishness and death and darkness and confusion and evil like what are you choosing what are we choosing and what do our choices say in the end the little ones, the 10,000 little ones, even the big ones. Like, are we choosing for the sake of self? Are we choosing for the sake of others? Are we choosing so that we look smart and can pat ourselves on the back? Or are we not afraid to be the fool if it means that this person is protected, that this person is provided for, that this person is given a voice, that this person is given hope, that this person is given life? Does it lead to the place of promise? the land just over the hill, or does it lead to the dark road that selfishly goes nowhere? I was um, reading this week, and this prayer of St. Francis of Assisi came in, and we're going to put it on the screen here, and I feel like this is the epitome of this moment, right? And I, I'm looking at it through the lens of a little second-grade boy, but I also am looking at it through the lens of the heart of God. And I wonder how many more of us need to act less scholarly and more second-grade-ish. He says this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. 
And where there is hatred, let me sow love. And where there is injury, pardon. And where there is doubt, faith. And where there is despair, hope. And where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. Paul gives us the very same challenge. Almost like word, almost, it's almost word for word as of Moses. And, and Paul knew the law and the stories and his history and his lineage. He was a good Hebrew. He was a good Jewish man. He was a, a, a learned person. And then he tells this brand newly formed church, see if you can understand the heart in it. In Acts 26, verse 17 through 18, he says, I'm sending you off to open the eyes of the outsiders so they can see the difference between dark and light and choose light. To see the difference between Satan and God and choose God. I'm sending you off to present my offer of sins forgiven and a place in the family. Inviting them into the company of those who begin real living by believing in me. So here's my challenge and here's my thought. Here's my hope. It's not very Moses-y and I'm not standing on a hill looking out at a promise. But I think there's a truth there that we can that we could take hold of. And here is my, my prayer for us. So may we choose light and life. And may we be a people who take the words of Moses and the heart of Jesus and the letters of Paul to heart and stand for something more than just ourselves. And may we be a people who by our bright choices, though foolish as they may seem to others, be the very catalyst for the love of God to be on full display. And may we see as we choose 10,000 times a day, the world that we inhabit is becoming more and more luminous with the blessings and the wisdom of the very God that we have chosen to follow. I don't know where you're at today, and if that just seems like simple, oh, yeah, okay, choose better, Bobby. I don't know if that's revolutionary to you or commonplace, but I think that, I think that it's honest. And I know, like, my hope is that I will continue to choose brighter and brighter every time. And I pray for us as a church, just like Paul, like that we're opening up people's eyes to see a life that they did not know existed. And I pray that together, like, this would be something we can choose to do together. Right? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the stories that we go over, the ones that have been around for thousands of years and the ones that happened in the schools just down the road. I pray for us this morning that we would take a moment to choose, that we would take a moment to be, that we would take a moment to, to hear your heart in all of this, God. I pray that you would forgive us, that you forgive me when we don't choose as bright, when we forget the the bigger things and the bigger picture and the promise just across the hill. And I pray, God, that this morning, that as we leave this place, that, that your truth would guide us to choose you every single time. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.